Have you ever uh, felt trapped, like hemmed in, two bad decisions are the only option, maybe two mediocre things, trapped between not, win, uh, not winning and losing? I remember uh, when I was a young youth pastor, um, we had taken a mission trip to San Antonio, and uh, the guy that I worked for, his name was Greg, and Greg just had this knack to uh, pressure you to do the things he wanted you to do. Some would call it manipulation. Um, others would call it, well, manipulation. And um, so Greg was like, hey, there's this, there's this we, to kind of commemorate the trip to end it, we went to Fiesta, Texas. And um, there's this thing, it, it was new then, it's not new now, but it was called the Sky Coaster. And essentially, it was um, 188 feet, maybe 288, maybe it was 288 feet, just to make it even sound more death-defying. And um, there are two poles, and you're like in this like harness, and they lift you up with like this crane-like mechanism, and then you get to the top, and one of the guys in the mechanism pulls the, the string, and down you go, right? And so Greg was like, we need to do this, which is what Greg always did. And I was like, no, we don't. And, um, but I felt like trapped, to be honest. Like, I felt trapped by the pressure of like being that guy, that guy who's not afraid, and the guy who was actually very, very, very afraid, right? The pressure of like people... My kids, the students, like hearing Greg egg me on and then knowing that if I don't go up, the ramifications of that, and yet if I do go up, I, I could die. <laughs> like, you know, most people don't die, but like when you're, you're like strapped in, and I was the guy in the middle, and there was two guys on either side of me. So I had no power in this whole thing. I was really just along for the ride. Like, I couldn't pull the thing. Because if I could pull the thing, we'd still be up there today. Like, and it just felt like I was just trapped. There was a no, it was no win. Now, of course, when I got up to the top and they pulled that string and we went through the first time and I realized I'm not going to die. The harness is going to hold me. Like, I acted like I was all about it, Right? Now, up to that point, I was just dying inside. I was like so dysregulated, and my, I'm sure my heart rate was through the roof, and I was like, it didn't feel good. But then once I was through the first time, and then you keep swinging, I, you know, Danette can attest, she was on the ground. I was yelling and celebrating like it was like the funnest thing in the world, right? But I was, I was in the moment, I was trapped between two bad options. Imagine for a minute what it was like when Jerusalem first fell. You're in the tribe of Judah. David and Solomon were your kings, the ones you remember, the ones that were respectable. You've heard about them, but that was way before your time. There were rumors that Jerusalem might fall, but you didn't believe them. You thought, I belong to God. I'm one of his people. How could it possibly be that Jerusalem would fall? How, how could God possibly be humiliated in this way when he made promises to us? 
I mean, if God's people are exiled, carried away, then he didn't save us. And, and, and by those very like thoughts, you feel trapped. Maybe he wanted to, but couldn't. Or, or maybe he really doesn't want to. And so you're like hemmed in between God's goodness and God's power. But either way, God is defeated. The gods of the Babylonians have won. And now you're in Susa. And the Babylonians and their gods were defeated just like yours were. Xerxes and the gods of the Persians now reign. You're a Jew. You're here. You feel alone. You know there's others like you, but you don't see them. You really don't hear about them. And with this edict, Haman's law, you've now started to hear whispers. Whispers out who, who might be a Jew and who isn't one. You don't feel like one. I mean, you're about to celebrate Passover, but it all feels like a sham to you. You've never even seen Jerusalem. And it's about redemption. And yet here you are trapped in Susa with an edict that means you're certain annihilation and no redemption. Even after dying to get to Susa, you're about to die again. Trapped. Where was God? I mean, where is he now? As you sit this morning, how often do you feel God's absence, his silence. If we're honest, I think most of us feel that oftentimes more than we feel his presence. Like we're, like we're trapped in this upside down place, underwater, with no words, just floating, stuck. For the Jew in Susa, if you've spent your life in exile, you've watched all your friends and neighbors be assimilated, deconstructing all that they believe. And now they and you are destined for the gallows because of Haman's law. Your life is destined to be plundered. All your treasures, all your worldly possessions to be given to whoever lays claim on them first. And it won't matter about you or your children or your children's children because you will be gone. And they will too. Trapped. Your life back to the dust from which it came, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. And then word starts to spread about the queen. The girl married to the tyrant, the puppet. Did I, did I hear we're supposed to fast because she's going to appeal? And just like that, you, you kind of start to feel yourself starting to hope. Out of nowhere, in the silence, the absence, the darkness, stuck underwater where you can't breathe, you hear the word Hadassah. She's going to talk to the, the king. And even here, you're trapped. In your doubts, your angers, your fears, trapped between 
hope that feels like it's still going to end in humiliation. And that causes you to feel ashamed, like I'm such a fool. How can I possibly believe this? Brene Brown, the writer, asked an audience to react to a scene. She describes the opening of, uh, she says, imagine you're in a movie. A family is packing up happily for the day at the beach. They pack their coolers, their swimsuits, their sunscreen, their beach chairs, their towels, their umbrellas. They have shovels and pails. They're ready. They get into their SUV and they pull off and head to the beach. She asks, if this was a movie, what will happen next? Universally, members describe tragedy. Someone gets sick in the car on the way. A fight ensues between husband and wife, mom and dad. Kids arguing in the back seat distract dad as he veers into oncoming traffic where a semi-truck obliterates their car. You aghast. But I want you to think about, I want you to think about hope and when hope disappoints and disappoints and disappoints, what do you think is going to happen in your life? Like the other shoe dropping. Like cynicism seems better. Like there's this cynicism that keeps us from pain. It cocoons us. It insulates us. It helps us cope with disappointment. When things don't turn out, well, obviously, why did I expect anything different? We're suspicious, and when we hope, and it doesn't work out, you think, I won't do that again. We run from relationships because we've been hurt by them in the past. We, we numb ourselves, so we tend to protect our hearts. I want you to see that Esther is very tempted towards this. When Mordecai shows up in burlap, covered in ash, his garments torn, wailing loudly and bitterly at the king's gate, he is exposed, he has marked himself for death, exposing his sorrow, and in the kingdom of Xerxes, notice, no one clothed in such things is allowed to enter the king's gate. And yet because of the decree, the kingdom of Xerxes doesn't allow mourning, yet the kingdom is full of it. We're told in verse 3, in every province there was great mourning met with fasting, weeping, and wailing. And Esther doesn't know this, right? Isn't it shocking? Like the edict's been passed out. We're told there's mourning throughout the kingdom for the Jews, and yet Esther has zero knowledge about it. There's this interplay between her and Mordecai about the distress. And Mordecai, like, he says, you haven't heard. And she tries to do what? Give him some new clothes. You see how she already starts to feel like trapped by this news? Like, like, cover up, Mordecai. Like, really, come on. 
Like, you're making a fool of me, of you. You're going to expose me. By appealing to me, you're going to expose me. No one knows that I'm a Jew, and you're, you're going to expose me. Cover this up. Your tears are too much. I think about the Exodus. I think about like when, and this should be what we think about, by the way, when we think about this in the Bible. Like, this has Exodus written all over it. Like, this is a new Exodus that it seems like God is going to do. But the slaves who dreamt for a better lot, they, they hoped for it only to be beaten down by other Israelite slaves for even thinking that it could get better. Those who were on the run from Pharaoh's chariots saying, really, we left slavery for this just to die in the desert? They felt trapped. I mean, this is what we do to ourselves when we are under it and we think about hoping. Cynicism kicks it up a notch to bubble wrap us from disappointment. Mordecai won't let such things happen. He, he laments. He puts on sackcloth and ash. It's part of the biblical, biblical tradition of the Jews. Joshua and Caleb tore their clothes when the people wanted to return to the land, or return to Egypt instead of the land. David does this on several occasions. The death of Saul, the death of Abner, the death of Amnon. Ezra tears his clothes at distress about the way the people are living in the new land. The kingdom of Xerxes won't allow it, but an Esther formed by that kingdom tries to cover it up herself. But when Mordecai refuses, she sends her attendant, and Mordecai tells him. In the kingdom of Xerxes, there's no room for that, no room for sadness or lament or grief. I wonder about the kingdom of our church, like just this church, just the church universal do we allow lament and sadness and ash? Or do we feel trapped by our need to quiet that down? As she hears about this, Esther feels it. Like in the pit of her stomach, her, her face gets warm, her, her back, the back of her neck starts to tingle, she shivers. She understands the ramifications. I can't go before the king, not unless he summons me, and he hasn't been summoning me. It's been a month, and I haven't seen him at all. If I try to approach him, and he doesn't raise his scepter towards me, I'm going to die. I can't do this. Feel it. She feels trapped. Only seven men were permitted to face King Xerxes. They could do so unannounced, but everyone else had to be invited. We're not told this, but Haman has access. Esther does not. And so she tells Mordecai, she appeals to him, you know the law. What am I supposed to do? And Mordecai responds, 
Now notice, he does not take away the edge. Do not think because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance from the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows? but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Notice Mordecai's words, relief and deliverance will come from somewhere else. Now, God is not mentioned in this book, but maybe God is the somewhere else. The other place? Relief and deliverance is going to come. It's going to come from somewhere. The underlying thing of that is that God's going to do something here from somewhere else. Like, have you been in a predicament where, where you needed somebody to come through for you? Like a mechanic? We, we traveled uh, in a new, pretty new car uh, during COVID to Phoenix. It was New Year's Eve, and um, we got outside of Payson, Arizona, and our car, it was like, man, it was really new to us, like a few months, its timing belt popped, and the engine was done, and we ended up at the bottom of the hill, because I kind of coasted down to it, and uh, we didn't know what was going on, we just know that the car was like flashing warning lights at us, saying, shut down, shut down, And, and it's New Year's. And it's COVID. And we're like a, way, a ways from Phoenix. And as we came to a stop at the bottom, there's all these police cars all around. And uh, a sheriff comes riding up next to us. And he goes, hey, uh, can you move? And I was like, no. And he goes, well, we're kind of in an active SWAT situation here. <laughs> and so he gets behind us and like pushes us out of the SWAT zone. But he doesn't help us. Like, he goes, they do their job and they're gone. And so we're like, we're like, who do we even call? And we call, we finally got through to our insurance company and they got a tow truck and it was going to be like a long time. And you couldn't ride with the tow truck driver because it was COVID. They didn't let you ride with anyone. And so we ended up calling our friend Carrie. And she... Her kids all had plans on New Year's Eve, but she happened to not. And I was like, hey, can you help us? And she's like, I really don't have a car big enough for all of y'all. And so she lived next door to this person that she was in intense conflict with. In fact, they had at one time separated the walls between their two houses because they were so tight. And they had to build back that wall. And she went over there and she asked them, can I borrow your car to go get my friends? Like, have you ever been in that kind of a predicament where you, like, you had to ask for help and there was no one else to help? It feels better to be self-reliant. God is hidden, and yet there's this hope bound up in God not staying hidden forever. In fact, Mordecai references a place where redemption might come from. 
Even though he's covered in ashes, he has this hope, this trust. There is a place from which redemption will come. God will intervene. And the question is, how? What, what, what will God use to deliver? God's people will be delivered, he says. And if Esther does not cast her lot with her people, then the end will be her doom. You, you might die if you go before the king, but if you don't, there's still certain doom. You see, she's trapped. You'll, you'll eventually be found out, brought under Haman's decree, or, or maybe he's just invoking some sense of judgment on her not rescuing her own people. And I'm sure this is something Esther is plagued with as well. Whatever it is, the appeal causes Esther to act. And this becomes her vocation, her calling, the hand of God, her circumstances, and her story. They all meet. And she says, gather the Jews at Susa, have them declare a fast. And then notice what she says. If I perish, I perish. Now think about this. What changes for her? What changes? Will you be Hadassah or will you be Esther? Will you reveal that you're a Jew, Hadassah, to save your people? Will you use the power of Esther to save Hadassah? There is inherent risk in this, in casting her lot in such a way. For one, she's making it clear, I'm a Jew. And for the Jews of Susa or the kingdom, this will reveal that she hasn't really been living a very good Jewish life. She is a target of Haman's decree, and yet she also might be cast out by her own people. She is trapped. How does she overcome this? I mean, up to this point, she's been passive, following the path of least resistance, but now something shifts. She takes responsibility. She's afraid. And so she cries out to Mordecai, ask. Now remember, nothing's mentioned about prayer, but she asked God, asked the people to fast with her, which just bound up in that for the people of Israel is prayer. Now, I'm not inviting you this morning to like become Esther, but I want you to see that her story is a story of redemption. Mordecai and Esther aren't held up, but they're shown to be agents through whom God works. God might come through her decision to cast her lot with God's people and the invitation, where are you? This morning as you sit here, where are you in your relationship to this same God? Have you cast your lot with him? Because he has cast his lot with you. And will your story then be a story of redemption? 
When you, when, you hear, when you hear the gospel and respond, the gospel calls us, confronts us in our identity. Will we cast our lot with God and his people? Our response to that question defines who we are, to whom we belong. In identifying with Jesus on the backside of his story, we're brought into his life and redemption. And it's a hope that goes beyond our life and even our death And maybe this is where we we have to start repenting of our cynical hearts. Because cynicism can keep us from throwing in our lot with God. It can definitely keep us from throwing it in with outsiders, the broken, the grieving, the suffering. But the gospel is inviting us into this sort of relationship, a dynamic one. And it promises to transform us into human agents of God's love and grace. And the pattern of our life then becomes this like, pattern that Esther exemplifies for us, a pattern of the cross. If I perish, I perish. It's a life that looks like the cross, crucified with Christ. Will I identify with Jesus and his people? Will I be a person of the cross, or maybe better, a person of the ash, of the dust? This life, this one human life, is a life that returns to the dust. So I will embrace my humanity the scratchy, itchy sackcloth. I will empty myself again for a people who don't see it, acknowledge it, who, are, who may be not even changed by it. Esther is stuck in such a place. And so she, when she calls this fast, she's re- responding to God and casting her lot with him. And it's encouraging to see that even when we're reluctant, motivated by the wrong reasons, God is still merciful. So this morning... Why are you in this place? Where are you stuck, trapped? Esther starts to see that her life is bound up with God and his people. I want to close with this. Um, Chad Bird um, wrote this little thing. If you like wide open spaces, you probably don't like the situations in which God often places you. For he hems you in on every side. He presses you between a rock and a hard place so that there seems like there's no other way out. You feel like Joseph behind the bars of an Egyptian dungeon. Or like David, hounded by Saul year after year. Or like the Israelites, trapped between the Red Sea and a red-eyed army, thirsty for blood. Maybe even like Hadassah, Esther. Between going before the king and the destruction of doing nothing. God, God used Moses to tell old Pharaoh, let my people go. But then God turns right around and lets his people go down a one-way street with a pack of Egyptian wolves howling at their heels. Bird says, but such are the ways of our backwards God. He's always doing things his way and not our own. In the Exodus, he has Israel right where he wants them, trapped. A body of water in front of them, enemies behind them, God above them, ready to save and redeem.
Our Lord is always undoing us that he might redo us. And hear this, in, in the light of Esther Hadessa, she experiences a, a new birth here of some sort as she cast her lot with her people and with her God. Our Lord is always undoing us that he might redo us, killing us that he might enliven us. And in Esther, between Xerxes and an edict, trapped. But when those Exodus waters, with those waters, hear this, he baptizes us into a Good Friday sea that we might walk yonder on an Easter shore. Our fathers were all under the cloud of God's glory and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into, the, uh, into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. The, the Red Sea, Bird says, was one vast baptismal font in which Israel learned that the Lord fights for them. The, the Spirit breathed upon these waters. They split in two like a temple veil. And through them, the people of God walked into life and freedom. And behind them, their enemies pursued and they're buried beneath the waves. Pharaoh's chariots are rusting at the bottom of every baptismal font. Your sins litter the ocean floor, never again to resurface. For on the day of your baptism, there was a body of water in front of you and your enemies behind you and God above you ready to save. And save he did. He let, out, he let his people. He lets you go. He lets you go out of bondage, out of death, out of sins, into the promised lands. The God who kills and makes alive has drowned all your foes in the baptismal Red Sea and brought you safely through to life in Jesus Christ. Your and I's life are bound to this crucified God. And our call, like Esther's, is to cast our lot with him, and with his people, with the broken and the outcast, and lose everything to follow him. Let's pray. God, we, we do, I mean, if we're honest, we do feel trapped. We do feel trapped between cynicism and hope. We feel trapped between options that don't feel good for us. We, we feel trapped by the, like the prison of our own thoughts and hearts and what you say about us. Like you say all these promises about us. You declare these things over us. And yet day in, day out, we often feel none of those things. We feel trapped in our shame and our bondage. Trapped from between our past and what we're experiencing right now in the present. Trapped in the present and what you say about our future. And, and so I pray that you would help us to see that that in Jesus, through the baptismal waters, faith and repentance, you kill all those things and you bring us new life. And you call us like Mordecai to like 
trust that you will continue to be a God and hope that you will be a God that will deliver us. And so when we can't believe that, when it's just too hard, I pray that we would, we would be like Esther and we would like throw ourselves onto the mercy of one another and ask somebody to pray for us. Be honest enough about like, man, I'm, I feel trapped between God's hardness and my life that seems so broken. Will you pray for me? Will you declare a fast and remind me that God saves? Help us, God, we pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.